This is episode 237 of IDRA Class Notes. IDRA has definitely advocated for student and family engagement plans, um, which would be a very sustainable, long-term, robust communication uh, between schools, families, and other stakeholders to just ensure that students continue having a positive relationship with their own learning and that families feel empowered to even approach and engage in these critical conversations with their schools, because all of those aspects are very critical in overcoming the digital divide. Welcome back to IDRA's Class Notes podcast. This episode follows a series of discussions focused on the digital divide that IDRA led with digital equity experts during the 87th Texas legislature. This conversation highlights the importance of equitable access to broadband infrastructure and policies that will influence state broadband adoption. IDRA's conversation is led by local industry leader, guest Renee Gonzalez of Lit Communities, LLC. Renee is joined by research analyst Christina Quintanilla Munoz and policy communications strategist Thomas Marshall of IDRA, formerly a part of IDRA's Education Policy Fellows Program. The conversation is facilitated by Michelle Vega of IDRA. I am Michelle Vega, Chief Technology Strategist here at IDRA. Hi, my name is Rene Gonzalez, and I'm the Chief Strategy Officer of Lit Communities, and uh, our company works with cities and school districts and counties and uh, local government throughout the country, helping them get better broadband into their communities. Thank you. Thomas? Yeah, hello, everyone. My name is Thomas Marshall. I'm a policy fellow for IDRA, and my focuses this um, legislative session have been on digital inclusion as well as community and family engagement. And Christina, last but certainly not least, Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Christina. I, too, am an education policy fellow with IDRA. Um, I focus mainly on digital divide issues, student engagement issues, and student mental health concerns during the session. Um, And I'm also a graduate student at UT Austin. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and delve into the question. So uh, the first question we're going to ask is of Renee. So as someone who works with building critical infrastructure, how does your work intersect with digital inclusion? Well, that's a great question. And actually, you know, when we predominantly start looking at what is digital inclusion and what is the digital divide and how to solve it, people kind of predominantly look at the three legs of the stool approach. So infrastructure is actually one of the legs of the stool. We have access to infrastructure, access to devices, and obviously digital skills and literacy training. So amongst those three things, that is really how we respond as advocates and community leaders and to the digital divide. So, you know, infrastructure plays one really big key part but it's not really the entirety of it. But the infrastructure is really important because of the technology that fiber optics really brings and the opportunity that it brings to close the digital divide in a very impactful way uh, versus some of the older technology that we've been kind of dealing with the last couple of decades. Okay, awesome. Actually brought up a great segue. So the next question was really about what's the difference between dark and lit fiber? Oh yeah, no, definitely. And I think a lot of people are probably would be surprised to know that there's probably likely a lot of fiber infrastructure in and around their homes and their businesses and school districts. Essentially, there is fiber that could be laid, but not activated or not lit up, so to say. So that could mean that, you know, as somebody was maybe tearing up a a sidewalk or a trench when they were replacing 
a road or a water pipe that they laid a conduit, which is basically a pipe with a space in it where fibers are, are located for future use. I mean, that's a great way to save money because sometimes people say, hey, we don't know who's going to operate a network right now. You know, sometimes laying the fiber is actually very cheap while all that gravel is exposed and while construction contractors are already there. And then that day comes that they want to light up that fiber. The cost to do so is dramatically reduced because the most expensive part of getting your fiber in the ground was already done, you know, years in the past. So lit fiber basically just means that it has electronics connected to it and that it's serviced and that people are actually accessing the internet that comes from that fiber. So we work to help communities find fiber that's around them or build their own fiber that could be utilized. Well, I love how you're just segueing from one question to the next. So the next question, it really is about the last mile. So what is last mile and how do businesses and schools play a big role in connecting communities? The easiest way to think about when they talk about middle mile, um, which is also interchanged with backbone rings, and last mile infrastructure, a convenient uh, model to kind of think about it is like a highway system. You know, we have these large highways that go through and around all of our communities. And that is a good example of what a middle mile is. And that's basically getting these you know massive routes that go in and around north, south, east and west. They go throughout our communities. And that's great. We need to have that infrastructure spread out like that, the way we have our highway system. But last mile infrastructure is literally extending fiber off of that middle mile or backbone down your streets and eventually down into your neighborhoods. So it, it really does take building a network, just like the way that you would connect, you know, wired infrastructure in your own home, but in your community. So connecting the last mile is critical because typically that is where you, you get access from these backbone rings into your home, into your business, into your school. If that last mile is not invested in, then we're not going to really be able to close that connectivity gap. So the last mile plays a very critical role in doing that. And, you know, some people think about fiber being really the only solution here, but in some respects, sometimes wireless, especially last year in 2020, you know, wireless made a very big impact in, in how to get kids connected relatively sooner than later. So when we talk about last mile connectivity, you know, we, we really kind of need to challenge ourselves as far as thinking about, well, is this a solution where fiber is the, the best route or is it wireless or a combination of, of the two? And I think um, between the two, that's going to provide greater connectivity in the homes and get people more connected and students connected overall. Yeah, that's really interesting that you bring up wireless because you're right. I mean, wireless has really come into its own way when it comes to uh, connectivity. I mean, we can leverage light posts and we can leverage the tops of school buildings or businesses to uh, really share out that network with the communities around them. So that's interesting that you brought that up. Our next yeah. question, I'm going to pose it to Christina. So with the current legislature in session, can you talk to us about the current bills and how they impact the creation of infrastructure in rural and urban areas? Definitely. So I, I actually want to preface, you know, my conversation regarding the current bills with a little bit of history of the current status of these kind of bills uh, in the legislature. So in 2019, during the last uh, 86th Texas legislative session, the legislature actually created the Governor's Broadband Development Council, or the GBDC, designed to study and identify ways to provide internet access to underserved areas of our state or to Texas. 
And so Governor Abbott appointed individuals to this uh, development council who were then tasked with studying and identifying solutions uh, to provide those internet access services to underserved areas of the state. And so now the GBDC oversees the progress of broadband development in those unserved areas. They identify barriers to both residential and commercial broadband development um, and offers recommendations to the state of Texas to overcome such barriers in instituting access to broadband. And currently, Texas is one of six states that lacks a state broadband plan. And so creating a state broadband plan, ensuring a connection for all families and students to those high-speed quality internet services, um, and creating a mechanism to measure both student family engagements, those are all leaps in closing the digital divide here in Texas. And so one of the flagship broadband bills um, currently in this session is by Ashby and um, a few other representatives, HB5, would create a state broadband plan a statewide broadband office and federal grant investment program to allocate federal funds to communities. And HB5 currently has been recommended for Senate local and uncontested calendar. So there is a lot of momentum behind this particular bill. The second flagship broadband bill would be SB5 by Nichols et al., which originated in the Senate chamber, um, which has now been referred to the House State Affairs. Just to include, I'm very thrilled and humbled to note that in close partnership with, of course, Lit Communities, Diasa, and other advocacy networks, in partnership with all them and Representative Ana Hernandez's office, IDRA actually helps support the adoption of an amendment to HB5 that would add an urban ISD or independent school district representative to the government broadband council to expand the authority of that council. And that was actually voted by a full house 147-0. That was a really great win. Um, and this amendment ensures that, you know, there is a representation of urban communities on this council, and it ensures access equity. So identifying who needs broadband internet access, creating measures to collect those more granular level data. It identifies those who need access so that broadband infrastructure can be distributed and adopted appropriately in those areas. So it's designed to uplift the students and families who really need broadband the most. And so historically, broadband access conversations really have been limited to only rural communities. So while this is true, while rural communities absolutely experience poor broadband infrastructure, about 75% of the 20 million U.S. households who still lack home broadband connections live in urbanized areas, and they're very likely low income. And that, that data actually is from the National Digital Inclusion Alliance from 2019. So, you know, this includes urban students and particularly students of color who really continue to bear the brunt of the digital divide, which is a very systemic issue. But just to kind of go off of that, there is a myriad of legislation this session related to broadband access, connectivity, and digital literacy designed to address that digital divide. But it is very critical moving forward that advocacy groups, industry leaders, community members continue to stay vigilant and aggressive in promoting you know, both their expertise, but their proposed solutions to this really systemic and pervasive issue. Thank you for all of that background. And that really does lead me into another question that we have for Thomas. So why is it so important that we do not leave out the urban areas from these legislative efforts? 
Yeah, no, I think Christina said it really great that a lot of times here at IDR, we're focused on educational equity. That's a really big part of what we do. And so a lot of times when we focus on just rural areas, it's actually, there's a great white paper that came out from the National Digital Inclusion Alliance saying that that's structurally racist. You're undercounting communities of color. Um, you're not focusing on those communities that have historically had problems connecting to the internet. You know, there's articles that have came out about digital redlining, these really over kind of systemic issues that we really don't talk about. And you would think that wouldn't be a big problem when it comes to broadband internet access, but it does. And just like Christina was saying, when we look here in Houston, Texas, um, Harris County, there's like 10.5% of, of households that lack broadband internet access. And it seems like not a big number, but when you look at it, it's almost 200,000 people that are not able to connect to quality internet service. And so I really appreciate recently we've had more articles come out in the Texas Tribune and other articles around the state that have really tried to make this an urban focus issue as well, because I think it's super important. And I think that amendment that we worked on was an important step to say, hey, we're in an urban area and we're in the places of Houston, we're in El Paso, we're in San Antonio, but those areas still need to focus on broadband internet access. Previously in the past legislators, you just kind of saw a lot of rural members um, focus. They're like, hey, like we need broadband internet access, but we're seeing a wave that everyone needs it. This is a pervasive issue that is going to affect every community in Texas. So it's important that we represent it that way. Thank you, Thomas, for bringing that up. I was thinking about the numbers as you were mentioning Houston. And when I think about San Antonio, San Antonio, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, has a little over 500,000 households. And then of those 500,000 households, 30% are without broadband internet. And so that might not sound like a large number, but when you do the math, it comes out to a little over 150,000 households where students and adults don't have access to the internet. And while the internet might seem like a luxury to some, it really isn't anymore. We apply for jobs online. We go to school online. We go to the doctor online. So it really is important that as well as the rural areas, that the urban areas are looked at and that broadband infrastructure is available to all. So Renee, despite high reported infrastructure coverage in national data sources, uh, the lived experience, as we were just talking about, shows gaps in the actual service coverage and quality. Why do less affluent communities pay the same price for access but actually get lower quality of service? No, I think that's a great question. And I think it is important to kind of talk about this because, you know, I don't think anybody wants to beat up on the big telecommunications providers, but they often tout these 99.9% map coverages of communities such as San Antonio and in South Texas and throughout the United States. And when folks hear that, they think, oh, okay, well, then it's not an infrastructure problem. It's something else. It maybe has to do with affordability or the fact that maybe people just don't want to sign up for internet, believe it or not. And I think that that's sort of a myth, to be honest with you. I, I kind of feel that this pandemic has shown that there's definitely different qualities of infrastructure and connectivity that we get in our home. You have people that have fiber going into their home such as myself. And, and I can say that I have a relatively extremely stable experience online. I'm able to do work online. I'm able to do these podcasts and video recordings and things of that matter. But you can't say the same for some of these other parts of the communities where these big telecommunications companies have not made these investments in infrastructure. And it could be down to whether their demographics aren't the same as a nicer neighborhood or something like that. So I think 
as communities are getting more involved, if school districts are getting more involved with how to close this gap, you know, they're really targeting priority zones, areas that are basically disconnected and that they've been ignored for a long time. So as communities get more involved with solutions, they're basically changing the the history of these areas being ignored. And they're saying, hey, it's important to us to extend our middle mile to these to these priority areas so that way we can do some sort of a solution that isn't available to them currently. And in terms of what folks are paying for their services, I mean I think that folks would be very surprised to find out that getting fiber and a high-speed wireless connection into their home or business is actually about the same or a little less expensive than what they're probably currently paying for right now. So you know, there's going to be a time where we're going to be getting good service at a good price. And that's what we need to be working towards as folks in the industry that provide services, but it also as folks that are, are catalyzing these solutions, which are the, the community itself. Okay. So Thomas, what does digital equity and inclusion mean to you? And how is it different than how we have branded past conversations about broadband? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question because uh, we've had a lot of groundwork built up so far about infrastructure, what that actually means. And we've talked about some of the disparities between schools and how families aren't able to get connected. But a big part of that overarching thing that we like to talk about, I think a bit more, is digital equity and inclusion. Just actually making sure that everyone is able to participate in this society that's changing and becoming more digitized as time goes on and making sure we're really increasing this digital equity. Um, So making sure that all individuals, every community has the access to be able to use this information and not just use it, but really go to that digital literacy piece. And that's even a question that we're, where a lot of advocates are having now, like kind of how we measure digital literacy. What does that really mean on a scale? Um, does that mean just sending an email or does that mean being able to like use an iPhone? Um, I think we've dispelled this digital native that we've kind of heard in the past, talking about how we just believe everyone a part of this generation is able to use the internet properly. That's not necessarily the case. I think there are a lot of intricacies on computers and different things. And I think we kind of have to move to this equity focused mindset. And so some of that includes that digital literacy training and making sure that we know how to properly engage with the internet. You know, screen time is a big thing that's talking about right now in school. So being able to um, do it in a healthy way. And then as well as creating these, these studies to be able to see who needs the access and make sure community leaders are actually at the forefront of this conversation. So a, a big part of digital equity is also making sure that communities are the people that find out who needs access and where to adopt broadband. Um, A lot of times it is good that we have now, we're going to be working on a state broadband plan and that's going to be a a thing. But I think we have to make sure that we know that the digital divide has been going on for years. COVID-19 has just exacerbated it. And in order to think in a digital equity focused mindset, we have to make sure that we're creating community investment plans to be able to ensure that uh, we have good mapping services and not just relying on that census block data and be able to really see who has access and who doesn't. This next question is for Christina. What does digital inclusion and equity mean to you? You know, I think what Thomas prefaced when we were talking about what digital equity really means, what digital inclusion and equity really mean, is really being able to identify who needs access. And for someone who is more of a quantitative researcher, I always appreciate data. I always appreciate uh, relevant, precise, accurate data. And so something that I and our research and Thomas is in my research um, have found is that a lot of these maps that have been developed 
to showcase or to demonstrate the areas of need or who the underserved areas are is reliant on, you know, the typical census level block data, which again has been, you know, historically referenced for creating these types of maps. But I think it's very important to um, understand that equitable data is, is integral to tracking this digital divide. And oftentimes that means going beyond utilizing that census block data to determine the connectivity issues, the access issues for households across Texas. As um, Renee mentioned, that last mile piece is something that the census block data it doesn't capture. You know, we can capture the broadband infrastructure access, but connectivity and affordability are other pieces to the puzzle. And so, you know, expanding the data mechanisms in place to capture that kind of data is crucial. So a census uh, block data can can capture anything from one city block to hundreds of square miles, and in, in especially in rural areas. So that can mean that one person can count as an entire census block, which doesn't really allow students and families to gain that access to adequate internet access. So one of the recommendations that I know IERA has really been advocating is the method of more granular level data selecting system to capture who really is in need of this access and who really is, you know, needing assistance for that affordability piece, as, as I mentioned before. Yeah, and I love that Christina has brought up a point of where we're kind of past this days of just like focusing on devices for students. And, and that is the big part of what equity in this digital space is, is that we're going to have to be sure one day we'd like to get to a map where we can see every single address and know every single place who knows access. And we can't do that without communities being at the head of that. So I think that's a, a huge part that we're kind of past this place of just devices in hand. We're really trying to figure out the infrastructure of being able to see who needs it most. And of course, that talks about the urban areas and communities of color are, are always facing the front of that. And I really appreciate how Thomas framed that, that communities are really at the head of this all, um, because it will take more than just the state or just federal level data collection to ensure that these maps are as accurate and as precise as possible. Um, it really will take government at the local level to help in that process and that procedure to collect like strong data on, on the families next door who may be experiencing access and affordability issues for sure. There are several things that you guys have said, you know, just with these last couple of questions. One was, you know, Thomas had mentioned about digital literacy and we have to dispel the whole idea of the digital native that people of certain age groups, you know, certain generations just know everything because they were brought up in a, in a digital environment. And so, you know, when we pair that with the, the fact that not everybody, rural or urban, have solid access to broadband, when you think about it, there's a whole generation of students that people assume have the skills and access, and they don't. They might have access from a cell phone, which is very different from having access to being on a computer, right? I mean, that little tiny screen, we all know that, you know, if you're trying to write an essay on a cell phone, that is a very different experience than trying to write it on a computer and using the proper software. So I love that you guys brought those things up. Like you said, they're, they're very important issues. Having said that, right, having talked a little bit about literacy, um, what role do you guys think, and I'm going to pose this to both of you, and 
you know, whoever wants to, to answer first, what role do you think teachers have in ensuring success in closing the digital divide? And, and I, I think it's going to lean heavily on literacy, but I want to hear what you guys have to say. You know, I can start in in my experience and even in my research, teachers have been so vital in this entire process, you know, in light of the transition to a mostly virtual learning platform during COVID, uh, teachers have just been a vital instrument support system for our students, connecting them to their learning as best as possible. And they've been truly rock stars through it all because it's really um, almost like new territory, you know, this is a very unprecedented sort of time. And so teachers have really tried to pave that way in terms of connecting students to their learning um, in a virtual capacity. Um, And so teachers will absolutely play an integral part in extending support for digital literacy, not just in the classroom, but uh, beyond the the confines of the classroom and the school um, to ensure that families too have training in digital literacy, Um, you know, informally allowing uh, families to be involved, to participate in their students' learning, um, whether is it it's, it's as small as, you know, this is a program our students are using in the classroom. Here's how you can do this in your home after hours. Um, so small things like that. I think it's integral. Um, that relationship, that foundational relationship between teachers, students, and families is really crucial in promoting the success of students. So definitely teachers will play and do play a very integral part to that. And I think Christina really hit on a great point of this collaborative piece that it takes for it all to work with students, families, teachers. And even I would go as far to say thinking about administrators and thinking about the the teachers and school boards and what kind of this relationship looks like. I think we're in a place where teachers have assessed the situation and now are seeing that not all their students have access to the Internet. And we know Um, It's great that hotspots have been distributed to students across Texas, and that's an important fix at the time. But knowing that that's a temporary fix, that's not something that's sustainable. That is not something that you're able to use three people for one hotspot. Your internet's going to run slow. Someone's going to get kicked out the Zoom meeting. And that's just like the everyday nature of the world that we're living in. And so making sure that teachers and administrators are aware of these issues and making sure that we're advocating in the proper spaces. So one of our recommendations that already includes a curriculum change in the environment and making sure that the internet is a part of having a good high quality education as every student in Texas is supposed to have. Um, And it's little things like that that's gonna make the the long run and being sure that, hey, just because a couple bills have been passed in the Texas legislature, doesn't mean that the digital divide is gonna be over. There's gonna be a long standing issue that we have to continue to advocate for for the next 10 years. And I think school board members, teachers and administrators are gonna be at the helm of that. I love that you brought up uh, school board members because I do feel that uh, just as integral as, as teachers are to solving this issue, so are the school districts. So we'll start with Thomas and then go to Christina. Uh, what roles do you think that the district technology departments play in closing the digital divide? Yeah, I think that's a, a great point in speaking about, we'll talk about devices. So a big thing that happened recently was TEA's Operation Connectivity, where we distributed a lot of devices around the state of Texas to make sure every student has a device. And so you're going to be working in conjunction with those school district technology folks that are going to be have to be aware of these devices. I'm going to have to be aware of the maintenance of them and seeing how we're able to use them throughout the entire school year. So 
I think it's going to take an effort between TEA as well as school districts to see, okay, what is the longevity of these devices? Are we just putting devices in hand that's just going to last two years? Or like I talked about a bit earlier, are we working toward this more sustainable fix? Are we creating Wi-Fi towers in certain school districts? That's things that we've seen. Are we making sure that students have connectivity at home? Are we working with our local governments to make sure everyone in our surrounding school district has that connectivity. And so it, it speaks to the importance of um, the amendment we spoke about earlier of having that representation on a, the Governor's Broadband Council, because if we don't have that, then school districts are able to play an important role when having these big broadband decisions. And they have to be. Um, they know their students the best. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. We talk about that all the time. And it's important that there is that shared connection. So for technology to be sustainable and long-lasting and to work with those folks that work on technology in school districts, it takes a bigger role to say school districts have to play a part in the, the digital divide. I think, Thomas, you laid it out so beautifully. Um, that collaboration is going to be key, not only in assessing, you know, the students and families who need the most assistance navigating such technologies or even getting access to such technologies, um, including devices and Internet, but it goes beyond assessing to really speak to solving the issue. And so knowing what solutions are best, um, because as Thomas mentioned, it's not a one size fits all, you know, even for districts. And so I think to that point, IDRA has definitely advocated for student and family engagement plans, um, which would be a very sustainable, long-term, robust communication uh, between schools, families, and other stakeholders to just rebuild those positive relationships and ensure that students continue having a positive relationship with their own learning and that families feel empowered to even approach and engage in these critical conversations with their schools, because all of those aspects are very critical in overcoming the digital divide, you know, understanding who is in need of that access and, you know, what solutions might work best for certain families or certain students. And so definitely speaking to that point of collaboration between all these different stakeholders, um, it's critical that we continue to promote that communication and continue to promote those relationships because at the end of the day, it's about ensuring that students are connected to their own learning, whether that's digitally, virtually, or in person. I mean, it's all about ensuring that their education is quality, ensuring that they're getting the most out of it, but that they know how to navigate the resources that school districts and their schools are asking them to, to use. And so part of those engagement plans really should be about promoting digital literacy, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, going beyond knowing how to use the device, but how to utilize programs that you know are critical in their learning during the classroom time for homework at home, promoting, again, that user knowledge of programs. And that's going to be really critical for educators and other teachers and other assistants within the school environment to um, support the families and students who are engaging in, in such practices. Thank you all for your contributions to this podcast. This has been a very interesting conversation. To close it out, I'd like to know what's one thing that you think we can do to bridge the digital divide? And we'll go ahead and start with Renee. My number one recommendation for how to bridge the digital divide is just get involved. You know, if you're a school district or if you're an entity that works with school districts and you want to be involved, you know, contact your community leaders. Find out who's leading the charge within your community. Maybe it's your mayor, maybe it's your city manager, maybe there's a department that 
is, is kind of leading the charge. Don't talk to just the city. Talk to your city and the county. Try to talk to as many stakeholders as possible to make it known that whatever needs you may be going through within you know, your corner of the community, that they may not be unique to you. They may be shared. So build a coalition, build some partnerships, and, and really kind of identify the, the shared needs together and identify potential resources to be able to tackle those needs. So that way, if somebody comes in and helps, whether that be a federal grant or a state grant, that it doesn't just serve one benefit, that it has more utility as part of those efforts. So I, I really think that that's the best opportunity to really bridge the digital divides, get involved, build partnerships. And when you are seeking solutions, do something that benefits beyond yourself. Reach out to your partners and try to do something that has a bigger collective impact. Yeah, definitely. I think the digital divide, um, as we've you know all touched on, has been a pervasive issue prior to the pandemic. And it only has been exacerbated as we've, it's been more salient that students and families are disconnected physically and behaviorally to these certain resources. Um, It's been pervasive before then. So, you know, that leads us to believe that this is an evolving issue. And so staying at the forefront of that evolution is very key. But I think the primary step is, is unpacking what digital equity is, continue to explore what those facets of digital equity are, go beyond the infrastructure, broadband infrastructure piece to it, which of course is a primary and very critical because in order to have the other facets of digital equity, we need that broadband infrastructure across the board, but just continue to have those dialogues about what digital equity and inclusion are, what are the facets to those, and how can we uplift our community to create solutions for and by them is going to be very important moving forward, for sure. Yeah, and I'm just going to really echo everything Christina said. I think one thing I'd love to see is just continuation of more digital equity studies that are done by communities that know their people best and know how to collect that information the best, whether that's surveys, whether that's through in-person things, online, whatever that looks like, I'd love to see more of that. There's a ton of cities that we've done research on that now make digital equity and components of their actual like cities, broadband um, infrastructure and broadband development, like councils and things. So I think that's a, a really great thing. So that's something I'd love to see Texas really take on and make sure that we're connecting everyone, but it's um, from the community. I'll go ahead and add my one thing. I think it's important that we shift our idea of internet as a luxury and really see it for what it is, a utility. Similar to light and water, the internet is something that we use in our everyday lives. We learn, uh, we work, we uh, research, we go see the doctor online, we do all these things online and it's really important that all of our citizens have access to the internet in the most affordable way possible. So seeing it as a utility, I think, can make that happen. This brings us to the end of our conversation. I want to once again thank Renee, Christina, and Thomas for their insightful discussion on how infrastructure and policy can help to bridge the digital divide. Until next time, thank you for listening to IDRA's Class Notes. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you, Thomas and Renee. Thank you so much, Renee, Michelle, and Christina for having us on today. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.